Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Now, a few weeks ago, I was truly fortunate to be invited to speak at a conference in Kampala, Uganda. The conference was a who's who of African researchers, policymakers, farmers, funders, you name it, but mostly uh, a lot of academics and a lot of influential people from the African continent. We enjoyed diverse talks from a range of voices from all over the globe. It was a wonderful time to see old friends from abroad. But really the highlights of the trip, the coolest parts, happened after the conference was over. And I got to see firsthand solutions to some of the major issues of the region. On the day after the conference, we boarded this small van, and it was me and uh, some journalists. There's Joan Conroe from uh, um, from Alliance for Science, Mark Linus, who's a very well-known author and uh, activist, uh, Sari Vanja from Cornell Alliance for Science, and probably three or four other um, African um, uh, journalists. And we went to a location called Kawanda, this place where we'd get to see the genetically engineered bananas that were a promising technology of the region. The ride was really long, and it wasn't long in miles, but it was really long in minutes, and it's a city of 1.5 million people, but I think I counted six traffic lights, and they even have a police officer in white who stands in the intersection and tries to guide traffic, but it's this dense network of cars and trucks and motorcycles, bicycles, pedestrians, dogs, um, all kind of inching along slowly through these dusty streets. From above, it must look like the blood cells coming together through converging arteries. You know how they uh, mix together like uh, like Tetris blocks and recombine into a new traffic flow in the next intersection. We'd sometimes sit motionless for 10 minutes at a time with zero progress. But it was a nice time to visit with friends and get to soak in the scenery of a place that was very much unlike home. One constant element was the presence of these bundles of green bananas at the roadside stands all along the path. It was the banana of the region, something called metoke. It's a food staple. It's not like the dessert banana. Just maybe in size and shape, but it's starchy. It's kind of the foundation of each meal, kind of like rice or potatoes in other cultures. And our slow and winding trip through the streets really underscored the importance of the metoke, Uh, It was important to the area's people. Large bundles of matoke were carried by hand or on the rack of a bicycle, um, on the back of your boda boda, you know, your motorcycle, or maybe on the tops of cars or even on your head. And this was not just bundles of bananas. This was the cornerstone of the diet. This was food. When we finally reached the National Research Laboratories at Kowanda, a place operated by the National Research Organization, or NARO. It's a public research institution, and the scientists there are deeply committed to projects to benefit the Ugandan agriculture. 
the Ugandan people. So while we toured the facility, I spoke with Patricia Nenteza. She's the communications director there, and she talked to me about the Matoke Bananas, their genetic improvement, and how discoveries at this remote research park might solve major problems in regional food security. My name is Patricia Nanteza. Oh. I work for the National Banana Research Program as a communication specialist. And, and so what, what is happening here at Kawanda is the name of the park, right? And uh, what's happening here that's really exciting about bananas? Okay, um, like bananas in Uganda is, is what Ugandans call food. If, if you present a Ugandan with a plate of rice and, and, and potatoes, they will say, I ate potatoes and rice for lunch. But when they eat bananas, they'll tell you, oh, I had food for lunch. So that is, that is the depth that is the depth of importance that we attach to bananas. However, um, bananas have been ravaged by banana bacterial wilt disease. And unfortunately, this disease causes 100% yield loss. When it affects a banana plant, the farmer cannot harvest anything. You just have to cut it down. What we are doing here is we are conferring banana bacterial wilt resistance to the bananas using the tools of genetic engineering. So what are the diseases that are the major problems for growers? Um, banana bacterial wilt, um, black cigatoka, fusarium wilt, and weevils and nematodes. And do you have uh, bungee top virus problems here? No? Not much. Okay. Yes. And so when you talk about um, black cigatoga, this is a fungal disease along with fusarium? Yes, it's a fungal disease that is airborne. So that means there is so little a farmer can do to control it. However, when it comes into the plantation, we, we, we usually advise farmers to, to improve on the nutrition of their plantation because it is not as severe if the plant if, if the plantation is well well manured well nutritioned then a farmer can still get get a bit of get a bit of a bit of harvest because the plant is the plant can resist black cigatoka when when it is well fed well nutritioned and, and so you've really def you've defined a couple of problems that we see in bananas here or in the in the in food yes. <laughs> What are the solutions that have been uh, taken and how are they working? Okay, I can take a problem and a solution. NARO has used conventional means of breeding and our scientists have bred a hybrid that is resistant to a hand, that is resistant to black cigatoka. And actually we are very proud as the National Banana Research Program because we have conquered um, we have conquered black cigatoka in bananas. Mm -hmm. our, our hybrid variety, which we call M9, is 100% resistant to, to black cigatoka. Um, however, when it comes to nematodes and weevils, farmers can use sanitation of their plant, make sure there is, there is little refuse or rubbish so that, so that the weevils have no breeding place, mm -hmm. but it's, it's cumbersome. Yes. And, and, and oftentimes farmers, farmers relax and then the weevils, the weevils, there is a resurgency. So we are also using the tools of genetic engineering to deal with weevils and nematodes. However, the research is in very early stages, and I cannot comment on that because yeah. we don't know what the results will look like. Okay. But, um, but um, there is also the 
banana bacterial wilt disease, which I have mentioned. Yes. Ugandans here call it the HIV of bananas, the HIV or the AIDS of bananas, mm -hmm. because when it gets into a plantation, you just have to cut down your plantation. There is no... There is no chemical solution. There is no solution to banana bacterial wilt. However, if a, if, if a plantation is, is well-nutritioned and has high levels of sanitation, still the plantation can, can have a bit of resistance. But like I've mentioned, those, those, control, measures, those control measures are highly cumbersome and, and farmers eventually lapse. So... Um, in 2000, 2003, there was a nationwide campaign to bring down banana bacterial wilt, and there was huge success, almost 80% success. But four, three years later, there was a resurgency, and that is when scientists decided we need to come up with a lasting solution, and that is how we decided to move into genetic engineering. Luckily, um, research is now at multi-location field level and and the plants have showed the plants have showed that they are 100% resistant so that is very good news however like i like some people may know growing growing um, growing gm crops in uganda on ugandan farmers fields is illegal so even though the research is ongoing on narrow stations and it's highly promising 100% resistance 100% resistant, we shall not be able to give it to farmers when we finish the entire process of research, doing the multi-location and everything that needs to be done. But um, well, what's stopping side, what's stopping it from going to farmers? The illegality. It's illegal in Uganda for farmers to grow genetically engineered crops. There is no law allowing for it. Mm. So for as long as it is illegal. We cannot release them. However, it is legal for GM research to be carried out. That is why on narrow stations there are quite a number of there are quite a number of GM research taking place because the law allows for research but not for commercialization and not for consumption. But this way you'll have the solution as soon as the law catches up. And that maybe feels a little bit good, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it does. It doesn't feel a little bit good. It feels extremely good <laughs> because I was told that um, in 2003, when BXW ravaged the entire country, the strongest of people, when when they went to visit farmers, the strongest in the group could only cry. So I can imagine what the weak ones were doing. People who had never seen hills in their home areas. Suddenly, all the land was cleared, the bananas were gone, and they're like, oh, there was a hill there, there was a valley there. That is how horrible it was. Wow. The entire landscape was wiped out. Because in Uganda, like I've told you, banana is food. It is everywhere. So when a disease comes in and it ravages bananas, then the physical landscape is... is, 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 exp is yeah, it's bare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it feels extremely good that for a disease that can bring about 100% loss, we are getting 100% resistance. So that is a very, that's a very big highlight for banana research in the country and with our partners that we are working with. And I guess the last question might be, when do you, when do you think 
this may actually be something that farmers would have access to? Um, all factors remaining constant, the bill being in place, research taking its, its, its course, I think five years from now is a good estimate. Not soon enough though, right? No, no, because we've just started the first multi-location trial and we need to do three different multi-location trials. Three location trials yeah. over three years at least. Um, the banana takes, it takes a year to yes. mature, so at a minimum of three years. Well, thank you very much for, for your thoughts on this, Patricia. I really appreciate that I got to see this firsthand. Very nice. <clears throat> thank you, Kevin. <laughs> In the second interview, you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Klet Wandui Masiga. He's the director of the Tropical Institute for Development Innovations in Uganda. Now, Klet is an old friend. I mean, we met several years ago at a workshop on technology and communications at Cornell, uh, one of the Alliance for Science events. And he's been actively working with government officials and, as a trained scientist, is uh, quite influential in policy arenas. So we went to his farm, which he does not refer to a farm, but rather as his garden. It was a good haul out of town, probably only about 40 kilometers, but in the really tight traffic of Kampala and then kind of slow, bumpy roads once we were out of Kampala, once we kind of strayed off the main paved highway onto dirt roads, um, it took a while to get there. And we rode in his truck, we toured his farm. Uh, he has bananas, but also beans, soybean, um, all intercrops so that the nitrogen-fixing plants can help push along the bananas. The big problems on his farm are weeds and nematodes, which are pretty much endemic across the region, uh, both which kill the crops. And we saw a lot of evidence of nematode damage, mostly trees that were almost loose in the ground that would almost fall over or would fall over uh, when they were producing heavy fruit. So I got to see his cows and chickens. I got to see his neighbors and the workers on his farm. And I guess I might have been the first person of European genetics to probably ever be in that space. <laughs> I mean, we were out there. It was a good long haul out to his place. The problem was I needed to be in Entebbe for a 11.35 p.m. flight. I had all my belongings with me. It was 5.30 p.m. or so, and uh, Entebbe is a good three-hour drive. So we've finished the tour, we got in his car, put on our seatbelts, Clet turned the key, and nothing happened. Zero. <laughs> uh, he tried to bump start it, no good, you know, this thing was DOA, and under the hood, the battery terminals were loose, the grounds weren't very well established, so this system was probably not charging the whole ride there, and uh, just had some marginal batteries that weren't going to start the car no matter what we did. I had to get out of there. Um, I had to catch this flight. I had to be in D.C. the next day. Well, we're miles from the main drag. Uh, it's getting dark really fast. So we did what heroes do naturally. <laughs> we gave up, sat down, and drank warm bottles of beer. And we recorded this next segment. So enjoy. <laughs> So we're laughing because, um, well, 
Uh, this is kind of the last stop on what has been a really uh, excellent trip, an excellent meeting, excellent conference. And on the last leg of the trip, um, I joined Clet Masiga. Uh, Dr. Masiga and I took a ride out to the country to uh, see bananas and see some farming here and, and where it actually happens. I'm very glad for the trip. But where are we now? Uh, we are 40 kilometers away from uh, the city center. Okay. Uh, the place is called Champisi. Champisi. Yeah. Uh, so farming community. There's, there's no power here. There's, roads are really not good. And, and so why are we here and not uh, heading towards the airport at full speed? Wow. <laughs> I chose to give you a trait, a good trait, <laughs> to see the farmer and uh, actually my farm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And... Uh, Unfortunately, which is strange, we get here and we get stuck. A car can't start. <laughs> so we have a technical malfunction 40 miles, 40 kilometers away from where we need to be, but that's okay. Um, I had a small kit from the Sheridan that had a uh, nail file that I cleaned the battery terminals, and we had some distilled water, some water we tried to do. That. So now we've given up, and we're drinking some beer and looking at your beautiful farm. Yes. I mean, sometimes when you're confronted with a problem, is to sit back, pick a bottle of beer, and then you think properly. Aye. So after a sip, <laughs> I'm able to contact a friend to send a vehicle to rescue us, but I've also sent for a mechanic to come and see what could be wrong. So, <laughs> so, so we have a friend coming to rescue us. We have beer. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we talk about the, um, the issue of the biosafety bill and some of the issues here in Uganda. That's always a good way to pass some time. Yeah. Okay, so, so the other day, could you give us a summary of your presentation? Like what were some of the key, what was the major point that you wanted to make to the conference? Uh, we have been pushing for Uganda to put in place regulatory framework. Uh, to, that can regulate the adoption of genetically modified organisms. And we have been facing several challenges. So in 2013, I decided to set up an online platform which brought together most activists against GMOs and the promoters of GMOs. And uh, we started debating. Four months later, I thought it would be good to put together all these ideas that have gathered. And I turned them into a scientific publication on public opinions on the Uganda Biotechnology and Biosafety Bill. And so the key issues that came up were, one, many activists are going to say GMOs uh, have patented technologies so once we allow them in. Uh, farmers will keep buying patented seed. And the, and the promoters are saying, look, patents will only apply to those who choose to use the technology. And it will never apply to those who choose not to. And no one is going to force anyone to actually use what they don't want. But could, could I add something there? Is that most of the crops you're growing here, like banana, or, you know, matoke banana, the cooking banana, or, or dessert banana, or cassava, that's all vegetatively propagated. So how would anyone stop anyone from using it? Yeah, you know, anti-GMO activists use any kind of 
uh, issue that they come across is to push their point. It's really true. I mean, bananas and according to our this seed system here, no one is going to buy. Once you get it once, you just keep getting the suckers and planting. Right. Uh, cassava is the same thing. You just get the cuttings and plant. So but, those patents really don't apply. But also, what else regionally, like sweet potato or yam, that's also vegetative? Vegetative. So this won't actually, the patents won't apply on this. And it's actually extremely difficult to apply patents on this. Yeah. Yeah. Then the other thing that they are giving is that they are saying is that, yeah, our draft law does not have a leveling provision. But the draft law actually provides for identification. And uh, the other thing is that the way we do our farming in Uganda makes it extremely difficult to trace it to any particular farmer. Yeah. Uh, so even if you leveled, and we don't know even where, at what stage you would level. Because at the production end, farmers are highly scattered and farmers are small scale. And then the way they get their produce to the market is through middlemen who also sell to middlemen. So by the time it gets to processors or final consumers, it has gone through like five, ten middlemen. Yeah. So it becomes extremely difficult. And by the time it even gets there, processing, if it was to be processed, it is extremely difficult for a processor to trace it to any given farmer. So we really don't think that leveling can work in Uganda. It's, an ex it's, it's difficult. It can never be implemented. Yeah, so the, the labeling issues, when you look at this, and you mentioned the middleman, but earlier you told me, and we stopped at a mill and we bought some milled corn flour, you mentioned that the first middleman might go to many small farms, which are acres, two acres, small farms, and um, on a bicycle. And yep. so does he, have a, does he have equipment on board to test... Uh, maybe do PCR and test the corn to see if it's genetically engineered? Uh, that's not possible here, and I don't see it happening in the next 20 years. <laughs> and as long as we continue having the kind of farming system, it will never happen. Because you are talking of one acre, that's not the case. Farmers grow a quarter an acre of maize. Mm -hmm. So it, can never, it cannot make economic sense for anyone to begin testing or moving with testing gadgets. Yeah. It's impossible. So, and, and, and testing really is, it really is, there's no reason to test because there's nothing to fear. This is a, a sound and proven technology that could be very helpful here, especially, now, the, what we've seen is especially in the area of herbicide-resistant crops, right? Because there would be a very good use for something like herbicide-tolerant maize, right? It, because right now, what do people do? Uh, Herbicide tolerant technology is the most, for now at least, is the most appropriate technology that Ugandan farmers can use because our kind of farm holdings are really small and then farmers intercrop a lot. So you can't use a tractor here, you can't use any other mechanized system here. So the most appropriate is the herbicide tolerant. And we have gone through the countryside, you see gardens are full of weeds, and weeds are responsible for more than 50% of the losses. So that is a major, major, major trait that we think herbicide tolerant could support. So far, clearing the land, farmers are using uh, glyphosate. And then when they plant their maize or corn, they use uh, ultrazine to do mm -hmm. the weeding. 
So this is something that you have already seen by for yourself. Some of us practice it, so we know it's a technology which works, and we're just waiting for it. Yeah, so what you're, what, the way it currently is working is farmers are basically doing the same thing, only using two different herbicides, one which works to kill the weeds, and then the second one that kills the weeds in the presence of the crop. So just for the listener, the, the glyphosate is a non-selective herbicide that kills everything. Um, the atrazine kills only um, everything except for grasses. So you're, it kills the broadleafs. So you still uh, are able to grow corn and treat it with atrazine. So you're really just switching one herbicide for another, only it would be a lot less work and a lot more um, efficient to have herbicide-tolerant crops. And, and what other traits would be very good for you on your farm? I grow bananas on my farm, and two major problems. We have the problem of banana bacterial wealth, which has partly been addressed by practicing proper management practices. But then we also have the nematodes. Nematodes are proving a nightmare to us. They will affect the crop, eat up the roots, and every bunch, every crop that puts on the fruit is thrown down because it has no roots to support it. Now, the most frustrating is that the research institutions have developed uh, bananas that are resistant to nematodes, and we can't have them because there's no law. The same applies to banana bacterial wealth. You can't access it because there's no law. Yet, it provides real solution to what we have. And for those who don't know, in other countries, banana is perhaps a luxury. For us in Uganda, banana is a, food, a main food crop. Some people without bananas on the menu, there is no food. And my wife, if there's no banana, there's no food. <laughs> Myself, I'm a little flexible. And in terms of the economics, banana is one crop that the country has identified to move farmers from subsistence to commercial and into a middle-income status. Because our projections, and from what I've seen practically, uh, I'm able to earn at least $2,000 from one acre of land of bananas. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure most farmers should be able to to earn that, and that should move us from uh, the peasant economy to a middle-class uh, income status. And this is where the government is focusing on, and it's the very reason why the president is very keen to ensure that we put in place laws that can enable you know, Ugandans to have access to biotechnology that uh, can get our people out of poverty. And maybe I should clarify, you left out one minor piece of data that's very important, though, is that okay, you can get $2,000, U.S. dollars, uh, for an acre of bananas. But where do you have to be to be considered in the middle class in terms of your uh, lifestyle and options? Uh, the figure that we are required to hit the middle class is 1000 about 1050 U.S. dollars annually. Yeah. So bananas, if you have one acre of land of bananas... You're already... You're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So and if you have maybe a dozen acres, then maybe you could do really well. Yeah, if you have a dozen acres, then you'll be in what we call the upper middle class, which is around 10,000 U.S. dollars per annum. And I think that is perhaps what the middle class in the United States earn. They earn perhaps around $10,000 
a year. And this is possible with 10 acres of banana. Yeah, Actually, five acres of banana crop. Yeah, that's true. Y you that's get that. True. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I, I think it's something that people who, because most of our audience is in, in the U.S. and Europe and Canada. And um, what, are, what are some of the other major issues in the country? I know that we talk about um, the banana and, and the importance here. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the bacterial wilt resistant as well as the vitamin A banana that's coming, many of the problems there. But what about the other staple crops in Uganda? What other crops are grown here that could benefit from biotechnology? Uh, if I can list them, we have maize, it's a big crop. And its key constraints are two. One is abiotic and the other is uh, biotic. The biotic is uh, now we have the army follow-on. Yes. And obviously before that, we had the stem water, which was a big problem. Now for both constraints, BT maize could offer one of the best solutions available. Because in last season alone, when we had the outbreak of the army womb, no farmer who was commercially growing maize could harvest anything without making use of uh, chemicals. Now, what did the chemicals do? The chemicals have killed the bees. They are perhaps leaving lots of residues. We haven't quantified that, but we know that is what is happening. And we also left, lost revenue. We lost a lot of money to buy the chemicals. Now, on top of buying the chemicals, even when you use the chemicals, you, you, what you get is much, much, much less. So, Again, in terms of production, you will get something, but you will still have lost. But those farmers who never sprayed lost nearly everything. Now, for abiotic, the key one is actually drought. We have frequent droughts that keep occurring when the crop needs more moisture. In 20, last year, we lost uh, maize, which the Ministry of Agriculture have estimated that we actually lost a half a trillion uh, shillings due to that drought. What still is that we had many people die because of that drought. They couldn't have a crop and therefore they didn't have food and they have actually died. So we find this, uh, yet we, also, we have genetically modified maize that is tolerant to drought. And without a law, obviously farmers cannot get that is for a maize. But the other staple is cassava. Cassava is affected mainly by a disease called the cassava brown strike disease. Once it affects a farm, a farmer gets zero because all the roots uh, get rotten. Mm -hmm. And those rotten roots, you, if not even livestock can eat. So farmer has no food when there's cassava brown strike. Fortunately, again, we have a variety that has been developed using transgenic means, which is uh, almost 100% resistant to this problem. Then we have uh, sweet potatoes. It has a disease, a weevil, which once it affects your potatoes, you will find holes all over it. All the, the roots will be affected. The tubers will be affected. But we, again, we have transgenic potatoes. 
And one of the fears that people have is that you see patents, and patents can never apply on this because farmers, That's we right. have a tradition of getting cuttings from one farm and the neighbor takes, another one takes, others who come and visit and see something working, they just pick and take it home. Sure. Yeah, and that is how, how our seed system applies. And that is why even in well-established crops like maize, as long as it's open pollinated, the farmer will move to the neighbor once he sees it work, they just come and take. I recently had uh, a sorghum variety here which matures in two months, 70 days. And the farmers store all the seed. Whoever would come and see the, the head, <laughs> even before I would come and harvest, they would just know that this works and they store it. So right now, if I have to multiply the seed, I must hide it somewhere where they cannot access. <laughs> so the farmers here know what works. And as soon as they see it, no one will actually even have to tell them that, you know, you go for this. They will just pick it by themselves. Well, but that was a just a uh, sorghum variety that you trialed. It wasn't uh, transgenic, right? It wasn't transgenic, but, yeah. Yeah, but, it, but it worked. I, I'm just trying to yeah. show you. I just wanted to demonstrate to you that farmers know what works for them. Yes, and that's the point. I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone to think that you had transgenic sorghum growing at your house here. And, and then, you know, because that's the big issue is that NARO and other national organizations, not the companies, not anybody else. The national organization, the government, basically, of Uganda, along with generous assistance from others, is, have um, developed all of these crops that are available. So if you wanted cassava brown streak virus resistant, you could have that tomorrow. And if you wanted banana wilt resistant bananas, you could plant them tomorrow. If you wanted um, any of the traits, you could do it. But what is the main problem is, is this biosecurity law. There's no rules and there's no framework in which to have biosafety and biosecurity. And so how, is, is that pretty much correct? You are absolutely correct. And you know this thing of uh, the law, because partly even our president seems to have thought that we can even go ahead without the law. Until recently, he got to understand that actually this law was rigidity. They need to have the law was actually uh, as a result of an international treaty, right. which uh, the country signed. Oh. So when the scientists have been demanding, initially did not understand that uh, actually Uganda had an obligation to put in place the law. Otherwise, everyone was saying, no, if the thing is there, give us if you have the... The varieties that are solving our problems, just give us. Mm -hmm. We are ready to plant them, and they're addressing what we need. And you are the same people who have always provided solutions to us. So when it comes to the farmer side, farmers know what works for them, and they're eager to receive the technology. But because of the law, which was uh, partly legitimized through the international treaty, the CBD and the, the Cartagena Protocol by safety, now the government is beginning to rethink. But I'm sure because of that, we are soon going to have a law. Yeah, but the Cartagena Protocol, which really has confined many of the signatories, which the U.S. didn't sign this. We said, we're not signing this. It restricts our farmers. Yet many other countries did sign on many years ago. So why do you think that, that countries just don't say this is wrong, that we will not follow this? It is not good for our people. It's not good for our farmers. You know, why, why do countries still... Um, work with the, the protocol? Uh, I don't know whether you have followed the story very well, but for us now on the ground, we have been 
keenly following this and trying to find out what exactly happened. Yeah, what would happen? I have no uh, idea. The information we have gathered in the from talking to very credible sources, some of them were working at the CBD secretariat, they tell us when they had negotiations, the Europeans sponsored most African ministers of environment who went to negotiate. And what the ministers got was the bad things about the technology. And when it comes to the UN, the numbers are in Africa. Because you're talking of more than 50 countries or representatives against few in developed countries. So the Africans were actually confused and because they had been sponsored, the, sponsor, the sponsorers had briefed them of what to do. So they ended up adopting this law and when they came back home, because they are in environmental ministries, the agricultural ministries who need the technology are in a different they, 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 they belong to a different ministry. So in this case, it becomes very difficult. The people who signed the Katagani Protocol were from the environment, yeah. who perhaps don't need the technology. Right. Now, people in agricultural produce food for us, need the technology, but already the country has been confined because of another arm or another department of government. So undoing it is because of different interests. So now coordination to bring everyone on board is becoming proving a challenge. And if you if you scan through Africa, most countries that put in place laws were actually spearheaded by environmental ministries. That was the case of Ethiopia, mm -hmm. a case of Tanzania, the case of I think Zambia, environmental ministries. Where agricultural ministries or other ministries have tried to push through the law, it has become extremely difficult. But uh, Environment because they traded scare. And everyone thought now we must ban this technology which seems to apply only for Americans and not for others. And Americans are about destroying our environment, which really is something which people have now discovered is not the case. Yeah, it's, it's really unfair. Um, it's unfair that we can grow something that other people can't, especially when there's need. But, you know, just to, you know, we could sit and complain all day about, um, about, how laws are unfair and unjust and how, you know, make zero sense and how leadership fails. But if you wanted to, maybe we should conclude with a good question. If you had to look maybe, let's say, 10 years ahead, 2007, 2027, we might have the car started. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but, but you, um, uh, you, you'll have gray hair, I'll have gray hair. I already do. Um, I have gray hair on my beard. You have gray hair. <laughs> so what, what, do you think, what do you think Africa will look like? Let's talk just about um, Uganda. Do you think that the laws will pass and that the people will benefit from the technology? I think uh, Ugandan farmers are becoming more alert. So most likely Ugandan farmers, if the government doesn't put in place the law, most likely Ugandan farmers will force the government to do so. And if they don't do that, we are likely to have GMOs being grown in Uganda illegally. All that I know is that I, there are possibilities. Farmers travel a lot. There are possibilities sure. that if a farmer lands on something that works, they will start smuggling it into the country. We have seen it with several other crops. We will find here varieties that mm -hmm. the national agriculture that the national variety list has never leased, but you find them in the country, and no one seems to have a problem. And even the government, when they see something is working, 
they will never bother anybody. So we see illegal cultivation of genetically modified taking place. But the other thing that we see is that if that trend doesn't happen, we see many more farmers, actually many more Ugandans dying due to lack of food. And all this will happen because of lack of deregulation. Then the third thing that we see is that we are going to see an increasingly higher number of people running out of farming. Because there's no logic to do an enterprise which is not profitable, viable. My, I draw this from the fact that every time I harvest some bananas, I'm not even able to satisfy the demand of my neighbors. Some of my neighbors will complain why we have not given them. So we actually do rationing. Today I've harvested some 25 bananas, mm -hmm. and those bananas will be taken by, because I also eat bananas, so I will give 20 to my neighbors, and I will keep five for myself. And some of the neighbors are going to complain. So the next time I come to the farm, I will harvest, and I will not supply those I supply this time on. So we are going to have an increasingly higher proportion of our food being supplied from foreign countries. Because right now we import a lot of food. And what is very strange, I was told by an, a very credible source that uh, Uganda is importing uh, maize from Brazil and soya bean from Brazil. And oh, we sure. know that uh, Brazil, when it comes to those two crops, is on nearly 100%. So I'm certain, while they are not allowing us to grow them, we actually they are allowing us to consume <laughs> them. <laughs> Yes, and that, that only lasts for so long. Yeah. No, but what, what, just to clarify for people listening, when you say you have 15 bananas, you mean 15 large bunches of bananas, and that you're going to keep five. These are uh, bananas that are about between 15 and 30 kilograms. Yeah so, yeah, so so you're talking about a large, when you say you have five, the mind of the Westerner says, okay, well, you've got five little bananas. But what you're looking at here are big 30 kilogram bundles. Yes, it's okay. 30 kilogram bananas. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and to me, in my household, without bananas, there's no food. I mean, there could be other food, cassava, you could, I mean, maize, rice. But without bananas on the menu, my wife will complain, say, well, there's food. Yeah. She'll never get such fries with bananas. So for us, we help you consumers of bananas. And the other thing that, uh, Kevin, you need to know is that there are these bananas which people, sometimes people start saying, you know, these are tasteless bananas, they are not good bananas, that were initially bred in Honduras mm -hmm. and brought here for, and tested through our national research institution. Although they were not part of our tradition, many of my neighbors now appreciate them, including myself. I eat them without any problem, and I've never thrown away any of what people call they are not tasty. It is how you prepare it. People have innovated how to prepare it. It's now very tasty. So it's solving our problems. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I really enjoyed it yeah, this week. I got uh, every time with uh, some sauce or some stew on there. Exactly. It was good. Exactly. And it's, uh, but it's something that I really appreciate, the opportunity to try what I've always talked about. Because I talk a lot about it, but I've never had the opportunity to actually be here. So it means a lot. The other thing that is really important, and this is a good thing to t tell the podcast audience, is that this is a problem that affects many people. 
and some of the poorest people, you know, there's people who in some subsistence areas, not like, you know, east and, um, or west, what is it, where the areas east of here and north of here, that um, it's not a lack of technology. The technology exists. It's a lack of regulation to allow people to have the technology. And that is the worst kind of problem to have. Because we had a problem as scientists, right? And it, and it got fixed. Yeah. <clears throat> and the solution can't reach the people that need it. How, is that, does that just frustrate you to death as a scientist? You know, it's, we, it's, we, there's no justice. It's not justice. There's no justice here. And I can tell you what. Some of us had chosen to leave science and practice farming. Because, I mean, we look at figures, it's rewarding if you look at the figures. I chose to forgo my job. I was in the United Kingdom. I left, I came to Uganda. I said, well, I've done my projection. Let me do farming to earn me good money and I will live safe at the countryside. Then I lost my entire crop due to drought. And... Being what I am, I knew we have drought-tolerant crop, drought using transgenic means. And then, because we were silent, we didn't seem to bother. That's why we came out and said, look, it's a different story when you're simply a scientist, but it's a totally different ball game when you have practiced and you see what farmers go through. Most of the farmers don't actually know that such technologies do exist. Yes. Because I can tell you, there's no logic and there's no one who will accept to die the next day of hunger when they know there is a solution. But people are dying. You guys in the West, you eat too much, mm-hmm. then you start confusing us after eating too much. Here we hardly have what you're actually consuming. Yes. And when you live with people like me who live in the village, my neighbors, you see them coming and harvesting part of a cluster of a banana because they are going to die hungry. The next thing that we'll talk about is, look, you can't even take the person to court because the person has simply harvested just a cluster to go and eat that night. If they don't eat it, perhaps they are going to die. But someone is keeping a technology which is solving their problem because there is no law. And that's why when we talk to our neighbors, our neighbors are saying, look, it is high time that we come up, even if we sacrifice our lives, let's sacrifice for the future of our children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an amazing statement. It bothers me a lot. Um, because this is, this, and it's something that, we, that we, when we go around here and we see, it, when you're in the countryside and you see that, the solution, you see the, the, the bananas that have the wilt, you see the problems with cassava. The problems exist, and, in the, and this is what's so ironic, is here 70% of the farmers, 70% of the people are farmers, and, 70, and most people don't know about the technology, but they want the technology. In the EU, in the USA, 1.5% of people are farmers, and they don't want farming technology because people aren't farmers. And because people aren't hungry, and uh, I think this is a really important, uh, really important 
statement, and I think that's something that that we need to talk about more. So, so is there anything else that you would like to talk about to our usual audience? Yes. Uh, when you are in America and Europe, people talk so much about organic. Say organics are safe and everything else. In this part of the country, you have just gone through my garden. You have seen what nematodes are doing. Mm -hmm. Once they affect, you cannot have a bunch of bananas. It will fall off when it is premature, and definitely you have lost the money. Do you think you can tell someone here that this organic practice works? I don't think so. Because this is something that you have just seen. The other thing is, you have just seen the problem of weeds. You have seen what they are doing to our crops. And you have seen how we are using herbicides, Roundup, glyphosates. And you have seen how farmers have innovated. They use now the glyphosate to clear the garden and then use atrazine to do selective weeding because they know the technology works for them. The other thing is, as you look around, we have vegetables. There's no single farmer around here who does not spray. And these are problems that could be solved using transgenic means. So my appeal to the world is, where there's too much supply and people have luxury of what to do, they have their right to choose what works for them. But let those privileged ones not deny the poor Africans or poor Ugandans whom I spend most of my time with the technology that can help to serve them. We have people every day, the youth now are beginning to shun agriculture because it's not competitive. You spend so much, at the end of the day you earn nothing. There's no profit you have made. So the youth are choosing to sell their land, go to towns where there are no jobs, they become idle and become thieves. We don't want such things to continue. Let's have the technology and that's the justice that we need in Africa. Okay, I, I can't uh, say it any better than that. So thank you very much for your time today. And it was a wonderful trip <laughs> and an amazing meeting and an excellent uh, surprise here at the end. But uh, I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thank you very much for visiting with me on the podcast. Cheers, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. I hope the car is able to... <laughs> I hope my friend sends a car to take you to the airport <laughs> or to town where you can get another car to take you to the well, airport. Yeah, but you know what? If, if, if I get stuck here, that's not so bad. Uh, well, we can use another innovative technology. And that's why we say, <laughs> let's give people options. In other parts of the country where people have cars available, they say they don't need motorcycles, commonly known as border borders. Now, in a situation like this, you'll need a border border. Yeah. Because... <laughs> You are like Zara Svira, it's not available. I, I might have to buy a photo for it. No, 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 you get one. You pay a little money to take you to where you'll get a better view. I mean, yeah. the Luxurious like car yeah. to deliver you to where you want to go. Oh, okay, I think But here, <laughs> a border border will work. Yeah, I might I might be on a border border in about an hour. Good experience. <laughs> Well, during that interview, you can hear the frustration in Klet's voice. I mean, solutions exist. 
They exist. I mean, this isn't Monsanto, Dow Bayer. This is not the USA. This is the Ugandan government financing Ugandan scientists to create solutions for Ugandans. The main problem is that there's no system to approve the technologies. And this has come up again and again, and the government can't seem to pass a biosafety law to approve these crops. The main problem? Well, it's mostly the West, mostly the EU. I mean, if these crops aren't good enough for Europe, then why would Ugandans possibly want them? This, plus well-established fears from Western NGOs that penetrate the area, it really creates an atmosphere of distrust of technology, even though that technology could be a huge score for the people there. However, uh, we were there. I mean, I was uh, in Uganda um, at the same time that a new bill was going before Parliament. And back during the conference, just a few days before, I sat with a group of scientists and farmers with the science minister, and we answered his questions about the technology. And it was a really productive time. He's a sharp guy, a medical doctor who sat through the entire conference, paid close attention, asked lots of questions. And uh, I think we gave him the ammo he needed to really walk into that room and make a very important impression. A few days later, he presented the bill to Parliament and answered all of their questions. And on Wednesday, October 4th, 2017, I received an email from Klett that the biosafety bill was now law. The bananas of the National Research Laboratory in Kowanda might finally escape the high fences and razor wire. They might soon be shared across a region, helping to solve problems in food security. Scientists there will realize their dream of seeing their hard work and passions not feed the world, but feed a world. The world of the small subsistence farmer making a few hundred dollars a year. Their families, their friends, their neighbors. People surviving in places without water and electricity. Things that we take for granted. Yet even though they don't have the conveniences of the Western world, same farmers may soon be stewards of a different kind of advanced technology. And that technology can feed more people, raise incomes, and improve the lives of people living in poverty. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. So you're out here on a beautiful farm. Do you have a problem with monkeys? Monkeys are really a menace. They're really a big problem here. Well, what if you had monkey-tolerant maize? Ah, that can't work here because once the monkeys die, then the human beings die, so we can't use that. <laughs> That's right. It would work on us. <laughs> you don't so, have a species specificity. <laughs> uh, that would be a little difficult, I think. <laughs>